Welcome to the Healthy Family Project podcast, covering the hot topics in the world of health, food, and family with a dose of fun. Welcome to the Healthy Family Project podcast. I'm your host, Amanda, and today we are talking with Dr. Rick Neff. He's a licensed clinical and sports psychologist. Before we get started, I wanted to take a minute to say, oh my goodness, we are on our 82nd episode. I don't know how it's possible. I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to speak with many talented, passionate, and wonderful people in these 82 episodes. Thank, Big thank you to all of you uh, for making this possible. If we did not have people out there listening, it would be hard to continue on creating these episodes. Again, thank you for your support. Please continue to share the podcast with friends and family. Give us a rating, uh, leave a comment, and also be sure to join our Healthy Family Project Facebook group if you haven't already. It's a great space to share thoughts and ideas and continue conversations from the podcast. Many of our guests are also in the group and can answer your questions directly. Reminder, if you're looking for recipe inspiration, our website has nearly 600 recipes for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, all approved by our registered dietitian. And most of us out there have a student athlete or an aspiring student athlete or maybe a future student athlete that you don't even know about yet. Um, So this episode is very important because we often jump jump into a sport or have our kids jump into a sport without first thinking about the mental side of it and how we foster that mental health. Dr. Rick Neff is a licensed clinical and sports psychologist and the owner and founder of Inner Edge LLC. Dr. Neff also serves as the full-time sports psychologist for Villanova University, a former college baseball player and standout three-sport athlete in high school. He is recognized nationally and internationally as a leader in developing a healthy performance mindset, as well as working with athletes through clinical concerns. So we had several questions come through our Facebook group, and I'm excited to get those answered for you all today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Neff. I am thrilled to have you here and can't wait to chat today. I am super excited because we did have a handful of parents in our Facebook group submit um, to us. So a handful of questions that we can use today. But before we get started, can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, re- I really appreciate you know, every opportunity to um, you know, be on podcasts and, and be able to you know, share about you know, what, what sports psychology is since it's been so stigmatized. Our psychology in general has been so stigmatized over, over the last uh, however many years. Um, a little bit about me. I'm a, you know, right now. I, I own my own private practice, um, Inner Edge uh, Sports Psychology, and also the you know, full time sports psychologist for Villanova uh, University. So, you know, my background: I'm a former uh, three sport athlete in high school, played football, basketball, baseball, uh, baseball was my sort of best sport being recruited uh, to college. And um, unfortunately what happened to me in college and what has led me into this field of sports psychology was I had developed something called the yips. Um, and anybody who's familiar with, with baseball or, or softball is familiar with that term yips. So as a pitcher, I had um, sort of lost my ability to, to, to throw the ball uh, 60 feet, six inches. I couldn't hit that catcher. And 
you know, me being 43 years old and this being in the late, you know, mid to late nineties, um, I didn't, I didn't receive, and this is to, to nobody's fault. And I don't, I don't blame or point fingers, but I didn't receive the, the help that I needed. Um, mm-hmm. It turned out what was going on with me wasn't something that was physical. It wasn't an arm injury. Um, you know, I had gotten checked out medically, but it was psychological. And I had learned that through my own studies. I had started as a, as a pre-med student, actually wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, so I couldn't play pro sports. I knew I wanted to work with athletes you know, in that manner. I've been operated on myself several times. And so through some of my pre-med studies where I learned about mental health and learned about the mind-body connection and how important it is to take care of your emotions, take care of your mind, um, just as much you know, important as it is to take care of your body. Because when we think about pure performance, performance starts, it all starts in the brain. Uh, there's no muscle, no memory cells throughout our biceps, triceps, quads. You know, it all comes back to that, to that thinking that we have. Um, uh, and the, the coping skills that we developed, you know, growing up. So um, that's what, what led me into the field. I um, earned my degree in, in my doctorate in clinical psych, uh, knowing that you know, we're all going through stuff. Um, yes. <laughs> and each and every one of us, you know, it, it's, it's important for me to understand on an individual level who I'm working with, um, you know, on a clinical level. So to be able to do the clinical work with, with students and, and athletes and student athletes, professional athletes, um, as well as doing the sort of proactive mental training. Um, so I've been doing this line of work for about, um, I guess going on 13, 14 years now. And, and don't look at it as a job, really look at it as a, as a career, uh, enjoy you know, working with, you know, meeting new people, working with, you know, new athletes, of all over the world. Um, so really enjoy what I do. And again, I really appreciate this opportunity. Wonderful. Well, it's interesting because so many of the guests that come on the podcast have built their career and, you know, what they're doing or working on today based off of, you know, some, some experience that they had and a passion that developed to help others. So I, you're falling right in line, um, which is totally wonderful. And as we mentioned before we, or I mentioned before we hopped on, this is definitely a topic near and dear to my heart. Our listeners know I talk a lot about mental health, um, having gone, you know, through, I have two teenagers, so going through <laughs> all the things and both are athletes. So um, definitely interested to hear what you have today. Um, so with so many of us who have kids who are involved in sports at some capacity, you know, especially during the years that they are home with us, um, you know, I think athletes on all levels face added amount of mental strain. So what can families do to be proactive about mental health and mental fitness in sports instead of waiting until it becomes an issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great question. And a very important word that that you mentioned in the question is being being proactive and, mm-hmm. and not reactive. Um, you know, anytime I give a like a keynote speech talk or meet with the team, I always talk about it, it's it's tough being coming in and, and being you know break glass because there's an emergency type of type of sports psychologist. 
not that it can't be done, um, but you know, I, I think you know having the conversations early. Um, you know, a, a child's brain. I talk a lot about developmental psychology and child and adolescent psychology, and you know, the child's brain is 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 constantly developing, and they're looking for social cues, and they're looking to learn and being able to differentiate with, with our children the difference between mental health and mental illness. Um, that's, that's a really hot topic right now is that differentiation between mental health and mental illness. Um, just the way that our society, you know, as I mentioned, unfortunately, has stigmatized um, mental health and mental illness and hasn't done, my opinion, hasn't done a great job of separating the two. So I think you know, being proactive, having normalizing conversations around emotion Mm-hmm. Um, talking about coping skills, um, ways to manage stress. I think for parents too, it's there's something called the the writing reflex, where um, just as as human beings, we we have because emotions are so difficult to talk about, we have this instinct to just make everything right. You know, it'll be okay. Yes, uh, <laughs> tomorrow's another day. You know, just sleep it off. Um, and you know. Sounds good, you know, sounds good in the moment, but, you know, it, it doesn't, what it does is it, for a child and for an adolescent, it can, and, and they may or may not consciously be aware of it, but on a more like subconscious level, it sort of invalidates how they're feeling. So um, creating space to talk and I always suggest, you know, when there's something going on that, that is emotional related to sport or school or, or life, to open that door, to let you know, your son, your daughter know that, hey, I'm here to talk. Um, they may not be ready right in that moment to talk about it, um, but knowing, giving them permission. Permission is, is, is really big with, with, um, you know, with adolescents and, and mm-hmm. with younger children to, to be able to talk about it. And, we want to be, as adults, active listeners um, and be able to reflect and, and help our you know, sons or daughters come up with a, a solution on their own that we can then you know, positively reinforce. Um, and that helps us to avoid that, that writing reflex. So um, I know that's a long answer, but I think you know, being proactive and, and talking about it earlier rather than later um, you know, we want to avoid waiting for the quote unquote crisis to happen. I couldn't agree more in my experience over the past couple of years. I feel like I, our family is finally in a proactive space, but it's something that you don't, I mean, maybe some parents know I didn't recognize it. And I grew up in a time where mental health wasn't front and center, um, you know, really at all wasn't even talked about it was kind of like get over it life's hard this is hard move on um and so walking into that myself and now looking back over the past couple years and recognizing and I cannot stress how important it is to be proactive whether it's you know around sports or just in general but when it comes to mental health to um like you said not wait till the, the fire is going to um, run around and try to figure out how to put it out uh, because you, you're you not going to be able to find the right help 
that you need in a time, you know, like that when being proactive and, and finding people and support systems and whether it be therapists or having these people in the wings, um, mm-hmm. kind of already in place and in there. So, um, proactivity number one. Um, so are there easy tactics you recommend for building mental strength during practice? Um, you know, I, I was trying to think like, so on or off the court, rink, field, all of all of the sports. Um, I can tell you if there's a couple of things with my daughter. She's um, a varsity tennis player. When I say things like try to calm down or just breathe, you know, when she's losing a, a tennis uh, match, she she doesn't um, isn't real receptive <laughs> to those comments. So. Um, yeah. So what what can we do with these kids to build their mental strength um, during those times off the court? So, or, you know, so when they are in that space and in, in the heat of it, what can they do? Yeah. Again, another, another great question. Um, <laughs> there was t- you know, a typical reaction from, from yeah. adolescent, <laughs> <laughs> you know, usually, you know, mom, dad, you know, loved one is, is the, the target of the frustration. Yes. Always. <laughs> uh, because, you know, again, you know, really big if, you know, on the, the conscious subconscious levels of our, our mind and our thinking. And, um, you know, what, you know, with, with children without, I mean, with people in general, I guess it's really paying attention to like, like body language. So, communication communication and connection is is important in, in helping to start building you know, mental strength or starting with mental conditioning and seven approximately 70 percent of communication comes through body language so our brains are, are they still haven't caught up to 2022 um you know so from a primitive standpoint you know our, our brains are looking at body language um and Another approximately 25% is tone of voice and then 5% of the words. So that's why a lot of coaches, parents find frustration when they're, you know, the words are being spoken, but what the, you know, what the player, what the athlete is, is maybe seeing or or perceiving from the coach or a parent is the body language is coming across in a negative manner. So, you know, one suggestion would be, really being aware of, of one's body language when they're trying to communicate because we're not going to be able to get to the, the words or the comprehension of the words if the body language and the tone is perceived as more, more on the you know, negative side. Just right. um, So one thing that I suggest with parents and in working with their and coaches working with their uh, athletes is so through – utilization of body language is development of hand like some type of gesture and hand signal where so, you know the athlete you know already knows that that an error happened a mistake happened so they're frustrated and our our brains don't kind of fully emotionally mature until you know, about 24 25 years old so you know, an adolescent could be flooded with a lot of sort of uh, negative emotion, and our our brains are s- approximately seven times more likely to go negative mm-hmm. rather than to go positive. So, coming up with a, a simple hand gesture of 
this is what I you know do with when I'm on the bench, you know, with with teams, you know, with players or sitting in the stands. It's coming up with a signal, and that signal just it means something. It means to to take a breath. It means to I'm really really big on focal points. So to to improve attention or to increase attention or concentration, we need to break it. So the brain can only sustain attention and concentration for so long um, with sort of with regulated emotions. And when our emotions are flaring, you know, that that shortens. So so and since like on a tennis court, like picking a banner or something off mm-hmm. in the distance when you know an error happens, um, you know, we hit the ball out of bounds and we feel this frustration, you know. So the the athletes looking to the coach, looking to the parent, a simple hand gesture, you know, a thumbs up, you know, uh, you know, just a, a rub of the the temple or pointing of the head is a reminder for the the athlete to take a look at the focal point, to breathe. And there's something called the five second rule. A lot of research around this, where you know, we have approximately five to sixteen seconds to to take control of that inner dialogue. So we, we say anywhere from 200 to 1200 words per minute to ourselves. We're having that constant conversation. And when we can exert control over that, we can promote a sense of relaxation. Um, so you know, I think you know, that's, there's just some sort of basic baseline you know, skills that can be used to allow the athlete to feel like they're in control. The coach, the parent is providing that reminder, um, but they're not using the words. They're using body language and gestures, and the brain's going to be more receptive to that because since emotions are high. That's really good advice. Yes, I'm going to have, we're we're definitely going to implement the hand signal (laughs) (laughs) over here um, for sure. I know it's just, we try to do, the breathing, we've tried to do the box breathing and, you know, just to take a second and she's implemented some things herself, even taking, they have like, I think 30 seconds in between, um, you know, the next serve that has to happen. And so she'll just take a loop back to the fence, you know, and, yeah. and come back around. So I'm definitely seeing improvement and we, we've definitely come a long way, but those are really great tips. Um, what advice do you have for kids transitioning to the next level of a sport? In our Facebook group, we had a question about transitioning from high school level to college, which I think would be a really big one. But mm-hmm. I know it can even be hard um, transitioning from elementary level sports to middle school. I know I have a nephew and he, you know, kids hit their growth spurts at different times. And so he is, um, you know, an excellent baseball player, but I see him moving into the next level and went to watch a game and these kids are like giants, you know? So I can imagine like putting myself in his shoes, um, you know, how like that could be mentally hard, even just that little thing to go into that next level and think, oh my gosh, I was really good in this level. And now I'm in here with these adults. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And this is a really big topic with the college athletes. You're making that transition. I, you know, the, anytime there, there's transition, you know, whether it's you know, elementary to middle school, middle school to high school, high school to college, um, you know, college into 
you know, the, the working world or professional world, um, there's a, there's a, there's a normal level of anxiety because there's change and, and change elicits um, anxiety, nervousness. It, we, it elicits a, um, you know, questioning, am I going to fit in? So we get all these, you know, what if questions that pop up. Um, and so, again, I think being able to, to normalize that you, what, what you're feeling, this anxiety that you're feeling, this nervous, that you're feeling, it's, it's okay. Um, that, that really goes a long way, you know, because it, sport is, sport becomes such a big part of, of one's identity. And so making that transition, you know, in high school, being one of the, the better, the top, top players on a team, you get to the college level and, and talent pretty much levels out. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, the doubt creeps in again, those what ifs creep in mm-hmm. uh, having to make all new friends, you know, play for different coaches. So everything that the athlete's been accustomed to and has become comfortable with gets flipped upside down. Um, and so, you know, being able to, Again, have that open conversation and, and normalize that what you're feeling is is okay. Um, because w- when that door isn't open to to talk about it, the way we we're just born with these sort of inbred like defense mechanisms where we just stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. Um, and that's where I have seen more sort of clinical levels of depression or anxiety mm-hmm. come about. Um, it's because you know, during that transition, um, you know, the, the student athlete wasn't, their emotions weren't, weren't talked about, weren't addressed. And what they continue to do was just stuff. And they think, oh, I just got to play harder. I got to play harder. I got to play harder. And to the brain, what that's doing is just creating a clinical level of anxiety. Then more mistakes may happen, and it just becomes this negative feedback loop, um, you know, with the with the student athlete. So you know, that yeah, transition is transition's hard for anybody. Um, so again, I think being able to 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 talk about it, prepare for it, um, normalize it. Uh, if you know where your son or daughter is going to school. And trying to spend as much time there as possible, if possible, um, to just stepping on the campus, being on the field, being on the court, um, being on the rink or, or being around the pool um, provides that sense of, of relaxation and, and calm. And what I've been doing a lot more with student athletes during the transition is encouraging, you know, we're in this day and age now of, uh, <laughs> Um, you know, group chats and, and right, you know, all these text messaging. It's reaching out to the coach, you know, asking to be put into the team chat you know, prior to, to coming to campus and getting to know the you know, their teammates. Um, so, and that is that is shown to be pretty helpful, you know, with that transition rather than stepping on campus, um, you know, the first day and and trying to get to know everybody and figure out your schedule and figure out how I got to lift at six and then practice and then class and then study hall becomes, it becomes very overwhelming. Um, So, so yeah, 
earlier introduction, uh, I think, is is something that's beneficial in, in that area. Well, and I think two important takeaways from what you just said is that when there is a transition, that is what we talked about earlier at the time to be proactive. Mm-hmm. So to not kind of, you know, say, all right, we'll see how they do with this transition to be proactive before that takes place and say, listen, this is could be cha- a challenge. Let's open the conversation. Mm-hmm. Here's some things you can do. And I will say, like you said about the um, having the group chat, because I know in 2021, my when my daughter played tennis, it was um, still very, you know, COVID times. And um, they didn't do a lot of group activity together, right? And they didn't, they were very separate. And so it felt, even though they were a team, it was still a little isolated. And then I noticed that this year, because they were able to do more, they had a couple, you know, team dinners and they had a group chat going on in in an app. And so they were able to do more as a team. Mm -hmm. And so I saw overall is with the team, like a lot of that, you could sense the stress and anxiety was down a little bit because they had bonded more as a team and were supporting each other in a way that I think, you know, at that age, parents aren't, you know, they love their parents, I'm sure. But, you know, like you said, (laughs) sometimes the directive of things um, heads our way. So um, having that team support and that connection with others um, is really key. So the sooner you can get, you know, into one of those apps or chat groups with a team as you're transitioning, I would highly recommend that, um, you know, as a parent, having seen um, kind of the two sides of that. Um, okay. So, all right. So let's talk about that. This is a good transition actually um, to the next question. So what are the red flags to look for when sports is becoming too, too much or when the balance of life is off? So I, this is a tough one for me because like I said, I grew up in kind of a, an atmosphere, I guess, in a time where it was like non-existent. So I always felt like this is supposed to be hard. This is supposed to be tough. I'm supposed to be anxious because anxiety means that I'm pushing myself hard. So a lot of times it's hard for me as a parent to identify like, is this normal amount of stress or is this, you know, kind of off? We had a parent of a cross country runner in our Facebook group. She was worried her daughter was running too much. And another parent who was asking about balance in general, you know, when to worry that maybe the kid is, you know, super obsessed and, you know, just going too hard in it. So I don't know. What do you think? What's the balance? And, you know, what's, where's the line from a healthy to unhealthy amount of stress and what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, another great question that, that comes up often in my practice. Um, and it's it's a topic that I'll usually will spend you know, several sessions in an individual session with with athletes talking about um as you said, you know, obsession. You know, what is what is a healthy obsession and, and being able to individualize it. Some of the red flags that that I look for and in, in, in when I do parent workshops or coaches workshops to have the, the parents and coaches look out for our, um, you know, social with, you know, withdrawal. So, you know, I think that's a red flag, um, you know, not wanting to go out, 
and and do anything other than run or play baseball or um, you know be on the field hockey field um, that you know their their schedule is so regimented to 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 be out there and, and practice and work on the skills and paying attention to well you know if I I'm not out there and I know so-and-so is is out there they're going to be one day or one step ahead of me and better than me and that's something you hear a lot of motivational speakers talk about is being able to you got to outwork your opponent and yes there's some yes to that um but I think everybody's training plan should be individualized based on who they are to physically and and psychologically. Um, So when another red flag is not taking any days off again, because of faulty thinking of, if I take a day off, I'm going to lose my cardiovascular endurance, my VO2 max, or my, you know, if I don't take, you know, 200 swings in the cage today, um, you know, I got to then tomorrow I got to take 400. Um, you know, the, the bodies and, you know, the, the brain and body's ability to remember how to play is not going to go away in a day, two days, three days. Um, the cardiovascular endurance isn't going to disappear in a day, two days, three days. So, um, so, you know, when I say social withdrawal, it's, it's not participating in anything else other than, you know, the sport or structuring the day around the sport. Um, another red flag just be like uh, mood swings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if the, the, the athlete is, you know, <laughs> is not able to participate in, in what they think they need to do that day. They're just extremely angry and taking it out on, on, somebody um again usually it's a it's a loved one somebody close to them um so that's you know a red flag um you know changes in eating um looking at at body weight um changes in sleep patterns you know not being able to sleep because of the anxiety of you know i got to keep moving i got to get up i got to do i got to you know be up at 5 a.m. to to work out um so they're really like for the major red flags that I, that I look out for. Um, and when it comes to, to being obsessed, um, you know, it sounds like you and I, we, we grew up in the same era of mm-hmm. <laughs> having to, you know, focus, but, you know, I, there were also other hobbies, like, you know, and so I guess really I can add in a fifth one here is when there's just, there's no other hobbies. Like for me, all the, the athletes I work with, there, there's something that that I push that I don't say push I guess it's the wrong word but really encourage and ask the athlete to do um, and I had to really get used to the idea of video games but even if it's video games um, right and not on an obsessive level of playing to three in the morning um, but what, what I found a lot of success in in, in my practice is in steering the athletes I work with towards some of the books that I have read um, so in a sense, they're still training because we can train without actually being on the field. Um, you know, we could spend the whole hour talking about the power of visualization and what it does to the, the body. So um, that's another way to sort of create a, a healthy obsession um, with becoming the best version of oneself. Um, so 
um, you know, making sure, you know, if there's, if, if everything is just about sport, um, then to me, it's just, it, it's a, it's a red flag that needs to be addressed and, and talked about. And it's a difficult conversation because the messaging, um, I think social media has had a big influence in this area because everybody puts their best life on, on Instagram and Snapchat and right. Twitter and Facebook. And so, you know, what I hear often from, from athletes is, well, you know, I see so-and-so they're always out there. They look so happy. Everything's going so well. And right. trying to have that conversation. Well, of course <laughs> they're going to put, you know, that they, you know, won their, you know, swept, swept their tennis match. Um, you know, their practice was great and, and training was great. Um, they're not going to really put on their, you know, you know, sort of the more of the lows or, you know, some of the emotional hurdles that they ran into. So having to separate out, you know, the influences of social media, I think, um, has become really a big part of my practice too. Yeah, that is an added level, something else that, you know, we didn't have in our time, I will say. And even as a parent, and we'll have this question a little bit later, but even as a parent, you know, I think social media um, is challenging because it, you do have to remind yourself, you know, that they're putting, these are the happy times. Like these are the best things that they're, you know, putting out there. Um, so, you know, just social media is tough. So, all right, we're going to move on. What about injuries and missing out while recovering? It happens all the time. Someone in our group um, mentioned this, which I hadn't even thought about, but I can imagine this could cause a huge mental strain on a kid, especially when they're so used to that practice every day, you know, when their schedules shift and your body's not moving. I know myself and our listeners know I've, um, you know, battled with anxiety over the years. And when I can't get out and move, when I can't go to the tennis court or go to a dance class or go to yoga, I, it takes a huge toll on myself mentally, just me and not even being, you know, an athlete, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it, it circles back to the identity, that sense of self where you know, a, a part of you has now been you know, taken away um, you know, that being on the field, being on the court in the pool. So um, I, one thing I, I often suggest, um, is you know, even though the player is, is injured to still be around the team as much as, as possible Because often we'll hear, I just, I, I, I can't be around, I, I just can't be around the team because it's going to remind me of how much I can play right. coming back to the sense of, um, connection, um, being around teammates who more than likely are going to be supportive and coaches are going to be supportive. Um, I, I strongly encourage still trying to be around the sport, around the team as much as possible. Um, I mean, there's a, a professional basketball player that I still work with um, and he got injured in college towards me and my suggestion to the to the trainer on the team was to take the training table out onto the court and do the physical therapy out on the court um, so the player can continue to, to be around the team and watch the drills and see the drills 
Um, now it's a conversation of being able to manage the emotion because yes, you know, there's, there, you know, athletes are going to go through the grieving process of, you know, denial and, and anger and, and bargaining of trying to get back sooner, um, you know, feeling depressed. Um, so, you know, being able to work through those emotions, um, but, you know, for the injured athlete, trying to keep them connected as much as possible to the sport, I think is important. And that's also uh, an opportunity for me to talk about the, uh, the use of visualization because that still keeps a lot of research around it, it still keeps the performance pathways firing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit less of a sense of loss. And often what I hear is, you know, will I ever get back and be the same player? Um, after being injured and what visualization has been shown to do is to um, actually strengthen, strengthen one's ability to come back and and be just as good, if not better, uh, because you're continuing to keep those, all those neuronal pathways firing. Right. That's excellent advice. I think that, you know, keeping up and being part of your team, like I said, it's just, not isolating yourself. And then that visualization, I, I have, um, actually listened to a podcast, which not to get too far off track, um, with my younger daughter, she's, she dances a lot. And, um, it was actually about a ballerina who, um, was unable to dance for almost an entire year, but she used visualizations and hand motions and for an entire year and was able to like learn the entire choreography of Swan Lake or something and dance the lead role Mm -hmm. in the show just from like coming off of an injury, Mm -hmm. which was crazy to have been out for that whole year and then just use visualization and be able to then go in and dance the lead role because of that. It was just like mind blowing. I, I, we listened to it several months ago and I, I keep bringing it up and keep thinking about it because it was so um, mind blowing of a story. Yeah. Visual, it, a lot, a lot of research around visualization and that's a, you know, it's a perfect example of what you shared uh, about how the brain, the brain's amazing. I love studying the brain. Um, you know, Again, it's been a while we're talking about the um, the biochemistry of the brain and the body when it comes to performance. But it, again, it just keeps those performance pathways strong and, and firing. And then subconsciously, when we step back out onto the onto the court, onto the field, and the pool, you know, on the stage, um, we can just rely on you know instinct and intuition. And, you know, trusting oneself that yeah, I did train, you know, mm-hmm. look at always look at visualization as a form of training. Um, and then, boom, there you go. You know, things just kind of happen. Um, so it's a, it's a great example. Yeah, I'll have to share that with you. I'll have to send you the link to it because it was really fast. It was totally fascinating. I think you'd enjoy it. Well, I know we're running short on time. I have two more questions. So let me see. I don't want to leave any of these out. They came from the group, but let me see if we can get through two of these. So one, um, let's flip the script a little and ask about how to deal with the disappointment of not making a team or not being selected for an extension of the team um, that you're on. I know that um, from my personality as a teenager, sadly, um, was, okay, I didn't make it. 
like, I'm done with that. I'm moving to something else, you know? And I think that's horrible (laughs) (laughs) because you've trained and you've worked and you've developed something. Um, So how, what would you recommend on dealing with the disappointment? Mm -hmm. Yes. When I, when I get asked this question, I always come back to, and you gotta be careful because sometimes I, I guess I date myself, not, a lot of the younger athletes aren't familiar with, with the Michael Jordan story of. Oh, I am. I use that yeah, all the time with yeah. my kids <laughs> all <Yeah>. the time. <laughs> right. I mean, not, not making the, <laughs> the varsity squad and, and being you know, put on the, the JV squad um, when he felt like he should have been on varsity. Right. And, you know, again, you know, the, the parental influence of, giving some space a lot. I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm big on emotion. So allowing, allowing time to you know, give it a day, give it a two, two days, you know, and then, you know, come back and, and regroup and talk about, you know, what it feels like and, and allow the, you know, allow your son, allow your daughter to, to, to come up, you know, with a plan, you know, so, you know, this is the feedback we got from the coaches to why he didn't make the team. What what do you want to do, or, or how can we work together to be able to improve your skills? Um, I think in these situations, we want to try to avoid. And you know, there's there's nine common negative thought patterns we can fall into pretty quickly um, once we get hit with something negative, negative news, um, like not making a team. And one of those is just all or nothing thinking. So it's a, you know, I didn't make it, so I'm done, which leads into a whole nother conversation between growth mindset and fixed mindset. That's more of a a fixed mindset because emotionally it's too difficult to to think about anymore. So I'll just push it aside. Eventually it's going to bubble up again or the growth mindset of let's come up with some, some ways to, to work on your skills. Not, you know, not, Kids don't want to hear it, you know, but you know, it's not we know as as adults, it's not the end of the world. Um, but what it does is it it promotes empowerment, I think, in in the younger um, athlete to and and control to make decisions on. Okay, this is what I'm going to do to better my chances to make the team next year, um, and allow them to make the choices, and then being able to positively reinforce you know, those decisions, of course, you know, as, as parents, we want to, we want to kind of gently guide. Um, but, you know, I think that would be a great place to, to start in that situation. Okay. Well, I am so happy you mentioned that Michael Jordan story and I can't wait to tell my kids because they are so sick of hearing that story and I'm going to tell them you mentioned it so I can tell them that someone else talked about it. Um, and also on our wall in our house, I have this Thomas Edison quote, the most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Mm-hmm. Also, my kids love that quote, I have to say. Yeah, yeah no, it's great. It's a great quote. Right? Um, I and I asked I ask them all the time because it's hanging right in our, our st- stairwell. And I say, turn around. What does the quote say? Because, you know, they look at it every day and I'm like, they just glaze by that, you know, yeah. all these things that we put in front of them. And someday later on in life, it finally clicks like, oh, that's what that meant. Or, oh, that's what she was trying to say. But um, yeah, I love that quote um, and try to live by it for sure. 
Um, all right. So our last question from the group I thought was really interesting. Um, how can we as parents keep our own emotions in check? I think probably everyone out there um, has maybe let their emotions get the best of them during while watching um, their child's sport or, you know, you have these, you know, viral videos of parents out there. So what is your advice for parents to stay, stay in line while at these games? Yeah. Yeah, Another great question. Um, You know, we, you know, with, with, with thoughts, with emotions, um, we often think, you know, thoughts and, and emotions are, are one and the same and, being able to, you know, and they're not. So we can have a thought and we can, you know, and it takes work. We can not react to it. We can separate from the emotion, which then creates that physical reaction. So I always talk about this chain reaction of thought, emotion, physiological response. So like I say, we, we need to, between thought and emotion is space. And we need to be able to, Utilize that space, and I like to say, you know, just kind of bear witness to. Our, you know, we feel this sensation of getting frustrated, um, getting angry, um, you know, having you know these thoughts. Using that, you know, being able to take a pause. You know, one of the the, the most basic, but the one of the healthiest uh, skills is being able to breathe. Now you mentioned box breathing earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, also, my kids love box breathing. <laughs> yeah, it's a great technique, and um, I, you know, another technique that I use is, is parachute breathing. So, you know, it's you think so. We got like our central nervous system. We got our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our relaxation, calm down, and our sympathetic, which is the go go go. And so, parachute breathing engages the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's just kind of breathing in for um, you know, two seconds and exhaling double uh, you know, the amount of time. So for four seconds, and three or four cycles or reps of that slows the mind down, slows the body down. You know, it, it helps prevent us from directly going into an emotional reaction. Um, so I think you know, to, to control emotion, I think mean, being able to separate our thoughts from the emotion and use that space between thought and emotion to, to, you know, have that pay attention to that conversation with ourselves. Do, you know, do I need to react like this? Right. Um, do I need, you know, is this, you know, a question I always you know, pose to the parents when I do parent workshops is, you know, is my reaction going to be helpful or is my reaction more stemming from me? Um, you know, so, you know, being able to pause and, and, and question oneself. And like I say, we kind of put ourselves on the witness stand, um, you know, I think can help, help slow that down. Um, and you know, if, if emotions become, you know, start to flare up, just creating distance, you know, mm-hmm. getting up, walking away. Uh, I was just at a training not too long ago. And this, um, this was a recommendation from, from one of the psychologists that I learned from in these situations um, is to, to get up and physically move, physically move, walk mm-hmm. away, create distance, because what movement does is it uh, movement starts to produce um, 
um, serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. So they're chemicals that help regulate our mood. So getting up, moving, creating distance, you know, getting the event sort of out of our sight, three, four, five minutes, and then being able to come back, that, that can help. That can really help too um, in those those circumstances where the, the parents' emotions uh, start to flare up. Uh, okay, well, all right, Healthy Family Project listeners and Facebook group, I don't want to see anyone on any viral videos because you have the information. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been wonderful. It's a very important topic, especially as we're heading, I know people are gearing up for football season and all of the fall sports. Um, I mean, sports are year round, so always a, a great topic. So before we close things out, can you tell listeners where they can find out more about you and connect with you? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm based in like suburban Philadelphia. Um, my website is inneredge.com and there's a hyphen between inner and edge. So it's I-N-N-E-R hyphen E-D-G-E.com. Um, you know, on there, you can find my email, uh, contact information. You know, if there's you know, any further questions anybody has about you know, what we talked about today, you know, please feel free to reach out. Just mention you know, that you're a listener of this, this podcast. Um, and you know, happy to respond, you know, hop on a call and, and you know, help out as best I can. So um, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. This has been great. Thank you. If you like the Healthy Family Project podcast, which I hope you do, please tell a friend and leave us a rating. It will only help our visibility so we can continue to create a healthier generation. If you want to chat with me direct, I'm in the Healthy Family Project Facebook group daily. Please join us there to submit your questions for episodes and share feedback. You can find Healthy Family Project on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. Talk soon.